covers it for now. Um, as I mentioned, today's session is going to focus on diseases. We have uh, my colleague, Dr. Brandon Horvath, with us and a special guest, our, our maybe our first repeat guest on Turf Tuesdays, Dr. Paul Koch from the University of Wisconsin. How are you, Paul? I'm doing good. It's good to be back. Good to be the possibly the first repeat offender awesome. on Tennessee, Tennessee Turf Tuesdays. Thanks for oh. having me, guys. Uh, we appreciate you being here. And, uh, you know, I, I told you before we clicked play, um, I'm going to steal a question from Succession Finale podcast. I'm sure those listening are familiar. Um, and I'm going to frame it in uh, the area of dollar spots. So here's my question to start our discussion today. I'm sure Dr. Horvath will chime in as well. Is dollar spot on the Mount Rushmore of turf grass diseases? I'm going to hang up and listen. Oh, that's, oh yeah, that, that's an easy one, right? Uh, I mean, every, every part of the country is going to have a different Mount Rushmore, but, but I'll give you, I'll give you my four for us here in the upper Midwest, right? Dollar spot, you know, is not only on the Mount Rushmore, it's probably, probably the king, uh, at least as far as um, money spent and fungicide sprayed, dollar spot's the king. Um so my, my, my Mount Rushmore for, for turf diseases, the, the top three are easy. It's for it's going to be dollar spot, snow mold, and anthracnose. And you know, for that fourth one, that's kind of a that's kind of a bit of a jiggler. Um, you know, I could go with a maybe 10 years ago, I might say probably uh take all patch or uh summer patch. Um, maybe now I'd lean a little bit more towards like a pythium root rot or something. I mean, that's certainly that's an, it's a disease that we're seeing more and more of. Even, even up by us, we don't get as consistently down as you guys uh, further south get it, but certainly it's a disease of increasing importance. So for me, those top three are pretty, pretty uh, easy ones. And then that fourth one, a bit of a floater, but uh, something on the roots, certainly. So Dr. Horvath, to go catch me if you can style, do you concur? I concur. Um, I would say that um, for our region, Mount, our, our Mount Rushmore is probably dollar spot, uh, pythium root rot. Uh, and then, of course, being in the transition zone, um, I would probably lean towards uh, a couple of Bermuda grass and warm season diseases like large patch and um, uh, either mini ring or, uh, or take all root rot on Bermuda grass. So we've got a We've got a pretty good stable of diseases in the transition zone that we're 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 no, never short of disease pressure. Although we don't we don't often, Paul, we don't often get uh, plots like the overhead shot that you had of your snow mold plots where you can see 98s and 99s uh, for percent disease severity. We don't we don't see that all that often unless it's really bad. Yeah, snow molds. Snowmobile can be bad up here, and it was a bad year for snowmobile. Depending on where you were, Southern Great Lakes, there was very little actually. Kind of Chicago, Milwaukee, Detroit, uh, over to the Northeast, very little snowmobile. But Northern Great Lakes, ton of snowmobile. Rocky Mountain West, ton of snowmobile, and a lot of breakthrough untreated areas. Um, and we had a lot of discussions about why that why that was. And I think a lot of it is because we had some early winter rainfall events after those fungicides were applied. And you know, I always. I always think it's a little unfair, our expectations of snow mold fungicides up here. You know, we apply it and we were happy if we get what, 21 days of control for dollar spot. And then we're all pissed off if we don't get six months of control for our snow mold products. But uh, it was just one of those years that we had some early winter uh, rainfall events, ton of snow late, kind of late winter, early spring in March. Yeah, like, they got like 45, 60 or 50 inches of snow in Marquette in March alone, just way more than normal. Uh, so just uh, early rains, ton of snow late in the late in the winter early spring and just a lot of breakthrough untreated areas so um yeah we have we have the same issue with uh our expectations for fungicides for like something like large patch it's the same deal right like we expect two apps in the fall should hold us through the spring and maybe just one app in the spring maybe no apps in the spring depending on your budget and how come i have i have three percent disease it's unacceptable <laughs> right yeah but i mean it gets to you know same thing i think probably conversations you're having down there, it gets to the fact that the winners are changing and it's making things more difficult disease-wise, right? And, and from a snowmobile perspective, what would be ideal is if you would spray your product, it would snow like two days later, and then that snow would stick for, you know, four months, and then it would melt yeah. off quickly. But that never happens anymore. We get rainfalls, you get big swings in temperatures, 
really has an impact on, on the turf. We're seeing that turf that's not hardening off really much at all going into, going into snow cover, um, impacting the persistence of the fungicides that we're applying, impacting the, you know, the aggressiveness of, of the pathogens. So, you know, five years ago, I would have probably thought that snow mold wasn't going to be a real important disease for a lot of the country as the, the, the winters continue to warm. But I think we're seeing that it's, it's just making things more unpredictable and, and more difficult to control uh, with all the swings and weird conditions that we see throughout the winter. Well, I think it, I think it highlights a, it, an issue that I think is becoming more and more important, right? And it kind of provides a nice segue to talk a little bit about Dollar Spot too. Um, a lot of people don't know this, um, but uh, it really should be the Smith-Kearns-Coke model, correct? And... Um, you know, I think the these variations in temperatures, whether we're talking about snow mold, large patch, any of these other diseases, or we're talking about dollar spot, these very the variation in temperature and the variation in humidity and environmental conditions really highlights the need that we have for having good, solid, predictive models for these various diseases. And we don't have many of them, but certainly the Smith Kearns model um, or the Smith Kearns Coke model. Uh, is uh, is certainly one that has proven fairly effective at being able to predict when we start to see dollar spot pressure kind of spike, right? Yeah, no, you, you're right. And as far as the naming of the model, we didn't want to make it sound like a law firm. So I was, we were happy to have the model <laughs> stop at Smith, uh, Smith and Kearns. That you know, well, so you could have been a son. It could have been Smith <laughs> Kearns and son. <laughs> Well, I am I am much so much younger than Jim and Damon, so I'll, I'll tell them. I'll, and better looking too. <laughs> um, but you're right; we don't have a lot of really good models, and we need we need more effective models. And and that's you know, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, models are hard to do, and they take forever. Um, you know, the the dollar spot model took us ten years because you 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 collect data right. for a couple of years initially to develop the initial model, then you have to validate it in the field for, you know, two to four years, depending on the data that you get back, and then you have to kind of adjust the model and validate it again. So really, it, it takes a long time to get a model that works. And, you know, we worked with you on the initial development and validation of the original model and other collaborators at universities around the country. So it takes time to, to do those models. We're working on uh, snow mold predictive models right now, two of them. Um, in, in my program in um, collaboration with uh, Dr. Mingyi Chow, who, who was part of my program, and now he's the new turf grass pathologist at Rutgers. So we're working with Mingyi on uh, some of these snow mold models, um, two different models actually, one for predicting kind of when your fungicide, optimal fungicide timing would be for more of a traditional like Midwest to long snow cover duration model. Um, and then the other model is more uh, for uh, other areas that don't have prolonged snow cover, but just have cool, wet conditions during the winter. So a model that you might use down in Tennessee, a microdokia model uh, that would be used out in the Pacific Northwest, uh, down in your area, a lot throughout Europe, uh, just to kind of very similar to the dollar spot model throughout the winter, when are we seeing some of these peaks, uh, these peaks in pressure. Uh, but you need a lot of data, you need a lot of time. We've been working on both of our snowmobile models now for about seven years. And uh, we've been collecting data for seven years. And last winter was the first winter that we actually tested the model in the field. So they just, they just take time, but they're, they're important and they're gonna be more important going forward as, uh, as we need to basically um, optimize the, the efficacy of every single fungicide that we put out, right? We, we don't have a ton more fungicides coming down the pipe. So we need to make sure that we get the biggest bang for every, every application that we make. And so I think the models will be more, more needed as we move forward. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, just for sure. segue a little bit into the wheat science world, I know this is a pathology discussion, but the same is true. You know, we have emerging resistance issues, not a whole lot of new chemistry coming. And, you know, the questions are more about timing than product selection, one can argue. And your points, Paul, about fluctuating winter temperatures are well taken. I mean, Brandon and I have had some lengthy discussions here traveling across the state of, you know, as we see warm season grasses that didn't really cold acclimate get get hurt during harsh winter conditions now because of those fluctuations it begs a lot of questions about cool season turf in this region versus warm season turf and, and beyond just putting green surfaces it's um it's going to be interesting to see how our industry responds maybe to the the changing climate that we're presented with we did have another question while you two were talking um this is a question i think for brandon 
going back to the Mount Rushmore, uh, one one of our uh, listeners was curious why Brown Patch did not make the Mount Rushmore. That's a good question. Um, I would say rhizoctonia diseases in general, you could put on the Mount Rushmore, right? So you could you could throw mini ring, brown patch, um, large patch all into the rhizoctonia category and have rhizoc be on. Maybe it'd be like a 90 degree, you know, like a 90 degree face. And and uh, you, you'd have you'd have your Mount Rushmore of of those three diseases. That's, That's always you, one of the things that I I enjoy in the classroom with the students is is getting them to understand that in especially in that category with Rhizoc, you've got several diseases that they have to know, and depending on which which one you're looking at, kind of you know they could be the same organism in some cases, like leaf and sheath blight on on uh bent grass or mini ring on bermuda grass same organism uh same pathogen but but two different diseases right the 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 90 degree face is such a deep cut pathology humor i mean that that is that is wow <laughs> hats off to you my friend that is tremendous yeah, yeah happy to take credit for that when we'll, we'll we'll add that one you gotta have like the narrowing and maybe like a little cross wall on either side too just in case <laughs> getting deeper just get a deeper and yeah. deeper cut here we go Yep, here we go. If, if Pat Jones is listening, he's just sitting there going, pathologists are weird over yep. and over and over again. <laughs> yep, and and he would be correct. So get m moving forward a little bit here, you know, Paul, one of the things Brandon talked about with Brown Patch in mind, a couple, I don't remember it was last year or the year before, but, you know, we had a pretty lengthy discussion about the paradigm here historically was not fertilizing cool season grass, particularly tall fescue in the summer. The old school thinking was that with holding back that nitrogen would make it less susceptible to brown patch, wow. that if you applied nitrogen, you would get more brown patch. And uh, I know there was work that Brandon's lab did, as well as Dr. Kern's lab over at NC State that kind of shows the contrary is true, that like if you can feed the grass, it's going to grow out of the uh, symptoms more swiftly and the overall kind of aesthetic it will be less. How does that relate to Dollar Spot? I know I've seen you present some pretty interesting things with Dollar Spot and nitrogen uh, and the concept of growing out, uh, or maybe say Dollar Spot being a low nitrogen disease. Can you kind of elaborate a little bit on how those two interplay, knowing we've got lots of lawn care folks listening to us where nitrogen fertility is a big part of what they do? Sure. So, you know, a couple few years ago, we uh, we started up a project. Uh, Ron Townsend was a master's student uh, in my lab at the time. He worked for the Chicago District Golf Association. He just took a job as the Western technical representative for Syngenta. And uh, Ron's project was basically to kind of re reinvestigate this concept of dollar spot as a low nitrogen uh, disease. Because if you look in the literature, um, you know, I think we could... In general, we, we get these, these concepts in our head and we think there's a ton of study on it. And then you kind of go back and look and you're like, oh, no, there really isn't. And uh, that was sort of the, the case with Dollar Spot. There had been quite a bit of research on nitrogen and Dollar Spot, but not in, in the sense of how most modern golf course superintendents apply nitrogen. None, none of the studies or very few of the studies that had looked at nitrogen packs on Dollar Spot were looking at repeated applications of you know a foliar urea spray or a foliar fertility spray and so that's what we wanted to look at is kind of reinvestigate that but look at it with uh applications of a foliar urea spray every two weeks so again that's not how a lawn would a lawn care operator in most cases would apply nitrogen but that's that's what we looked at with uh with the study and what we were expecting and so we tested zero one two four and six pounds of n per thousand square feet per year divided into 10 apps um, and so what we were expecting with that study uh, was that with each increasing level of nitrogen, we would see a corresponding decrease in the amount of dollar spot, right? So when you go from zero to one and one to two, you would see less dollar spot as you went up the, the nitrogen scale. And so we did the study for three years in both Madison at our research facility and then also with, uh, with Dan Dinelli uh, down at North Shore Country Club. Uh, north of Chicago, who has probably more research on his golf course than a lot of universities have in their turf programs. So uh, always love testing with, uh, with, with Dan and talking through these things with Dan. What we found very clearly at both sites is that we did not see that stepwise, that dose response. We saw basically very little difference 
in the level of dollar spot at zero, one, two uh, pounds of nitrogen, slight decrease at four pounds of N, and then a massive decrease, almost no dollar spot at six pounds uh, of N. Now, um, I still think that those, those middle amounts of nitrogen, you know, kind of one and two, uh, will help you recover from dollar spot fashion, but it doesn't prevent dollar spot from, from occurring. Uh, and it's really not to get to those really high levels of, of nitrogen that you see that you see that that significant response. Now, every time I present that data, somebody raises their hand and says, well, I don't, I'm not going to apply six pounds of N. I'm like, that's not the point. I'm not telling you to apply six pounds of N. That would be bad, right, for a lot of different reasons. But the point is, is that maybe there's something about that process of applying six pounds of N that we can learn from that can help us control dollar spot without applying six pounds, uh, applying six pounds of N. And so we kind of looked at some other different things. Um, and one thing we found is we actually, that was just when we were starting to do a lot of our microbiome work. Um, and one thing we did is we went back in in the third year of that study, the third and final year of that study, and we tested the microbiome from each one of those uh, nitrogen levels. And what we found is that the nitrogen, the bacteria the bacterial communities from each one of those nitrogen levels were basically the same except for the six pounds of N. The six pounds of N had a very distinct and very different bacterial community. And so sort of our working hypothesis now, we're doing some follow-up work on that, is that the reason that six pounds of N was so effective at reducing dollar spot is that it's selected for a particular bacterial community. And that, that's something we would expect, right? If you put down a ton of one thing, there's likely one aspect of the microbial community that really likes that. And so they're going to eat a lot of that and they're going to increase in population. And so our hypothesis then is that when we put down so much N, there was a certain part of the community that really liked that N. It, it really increased in population. And that was that somehow helps suppress the dollar spot. We have some theories on why it somehow uh, suppressed the dollar spot that um, you know, is a little really wonky that I, that I can get into if we really want to get into the weeds. Uh, but we just think that that high level of N really selected for a particular bacterial community that uh, was, was helped suppress the development uh, of dollar spot. So it's not as simple as, you know, you apply more N, the turf grows more and you grow out of the dollar spot. I think there's more of a microbial component uh, to that. Now, let me just follow up quick before I... Uh, take a breath here, is that we have done other work and others have done work and shown less dollar spot, you know, at two pounds of N versus zero pounds of N. So, you know, I don't think that there's basically no impact of applying zero, one or two. I think, I think it's better to apply one or two pounds of N versus no dollar spot, but it's a, it's, it's not much. It's modest. You're not going to really have a huge depression in dollar spot at two pounds of N versus zero pounds of N. Yeah, for sure. I, I, it reminds me a lot, Paul, of uh, the the mindset with something like Pythium or Brown Patch, right, where more nitrogen equals more disease. And then if you go back and look at the literature where that work was done, it was, you know, 10 pounds of nitrogen per year was was advantageous for Pythium development. It's like, well, but nobody's applying that today. You know, we're we're way down at the bottom end of that scale. And and so the relationship that that fertility rate has to disease development certainly is going to play a role. And then to your point, the microbial community uh, plays a role. Certainly your your environment that you're in, uh, temperature, humidity, et cetera, is going to play a role. Uh, PGR use, um, all of those kinds of things probably all have small, you know, impacts. And And, you know, that's the... The, the thing that I think we we don't necessarily have a real good handle on as yet. One of the questions that I was going to ask you when you were talking about the model development stuff is, you know, with the the advent and the the increasing visibility of AI uh, being present, how much how much uh, effect do you think AI is going to have on our ability to load a large data set of disease development into a a learning model and and have it spit out things that say you know that when this happens disease goes up or down or what have you um, do you do you foresee an impact do you do you have colleagues at Wisconsin that are working on that kind of stuff now oh sure yeah there's uh, you know we've we've worked with some of our snowmobile models Ming Yi is an expert modeler he's worked with some of these 
um, some of these algorithms. And um, you know, this is, I'm, I'm not a techie guy, right? Took me, took me a little while to get my computer turned on this morning. And so this is out of my, my wheelhouse, but I understand the importance of it. And so that's why we work with uh, a lot of other people that, that know how these, uh, some of these advancements in technology work. And certainly it's gonna, it's gonna have an impact. The, the, the things that, um, that will still be important and will always be important, one is you still have to have a knowledge of the system, of the biology, right? You can't just have a pure data person that just puts in a bunch of data and we kind of pop something out. We, 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 we experienced that a little bit when we are, had our first iteration of the snowmobile model is that we got a really, we provided a great data set. It, it spit out a, a model that, that appeared to fit past developments of disease, but the metrics that it was spitting out were, weren't practical for us to use as, you know, as turf grass managers, right? Because, you know, it, it would tell us with great detail the, the weather conditions that would lead to 30% disease, but it wouldn't tell us how to prevent the disease from occurring, right? So we don't, you know, I don't give a shit if it's, you know, if you have, if you're a superintendent, you don't want 30% disease, right? So the, the conditions that lead to 30% disease isn't that useful for us. We want to prevent the initial start of disease. So we had to go, to go, go back and fine tune uh, what we were telling it and what it was spitting out. Um, you know, the other thing with, with models, right? We've, I've done a lot of work with models. I'm a big believer in models, but you also, as a superintendent or a turf grass manager, whatever, whatever model you're using, your you know, the model is a tool. It doesn't replace your experience. So, you know, the other thing that we say is don't be a model robot, right? So if, right. if model says to do something and you, you know, you look outside and it doesn't, doesn't make any sense, doesn't make any biological sense with your experience on that site, then don't do it. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to follow the model and the models are not always right. So like the dollar spot model is a good example. The dollar spot model uses five, a five day moving average of relative humidity and daily average air temperature. If we get, like we had this year in March, or uh, sorry, in early May, um, we had a five-day stretch uh, where it was it was very warm. It was 80s, overnight lows in the 60s. If it would have been, if it would have been mid-June, if it would have been right now, it would have been great dollar spot weather. But we'd had snow on the ground 10 days earlier. The, the fungus just hadn't developed uh, enough from the winter to, to develop then. So if you would have gone out, if you would have seen your model on, you know, on on May fifth and it said to go spray and you would have gone and sprayed, that would have been a total waste of product uh, because the fungus just hadn't had the time to develop. So you got to understand how the models are developed so you can understand how to best use them. And uh, you know, the, the experience of, of the turf grass manager is always going to be paramount. And these other things are tools to help them do their jobs, but they don't replace uh, their knowledge and their experience. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, I, I see that with fungicide programs. Everybody wants to know what, you know, what fungicide program should I follow, right? And my response is always, and the, the data that we have from running program type trials for years now is that the, the, the program that always does best is what we call the superintendent program, which is you look at the weather, you have the options on the shelf of anything you wanna spray and you spray what you think is gonna be active and you make that application for that particular application window and there's no set program. Right. Mm -hmm. You you understand the biology and you understand the weather conditions and then make a, an informed decision about what you want to protect against. And that always does better than if you just follow some script of this date, this date, this date. And the same is true with a model. Right. You have right. to you have to be able to look at the, the weather and then decide how you're going to apply that information to make a mm -hmm. decision. What I will say, Brandon, I, I think where AI and, you know, improved analysis of really big data sets will help, I think is in sort of this precision disease management concept. And we've done a little bit of work in this, uh, not much, but we, what we did basically did is, is right now, if you're a superintendent or a turf grass manager and you're using the dollar spot model, you're probably gonna spray the entire golf course based on one number, right? You're gonna, you're probably gonna have a weather station at the shop or you're gonna use Syngenta Greencast or Greenkeeper and you're gonna have one model for your model number for your location. But we also know that Golf courses have a ton of different microclimates. Disease occurs at different rates and at different stages over the golf course. So it really, from a biological sense, it makes no sense to spray your entire golf course at one time for the disease, or rarely does it does make sense. And so what we've looked into a little bit is, is can you put weather stations around the golf course? Uh, each one of those calculates its own dollar spot model, and then you spray based on 
you know, those individual stations. And so we did, USGA gave us a little bit of money a few years back to kind of uh, pilot this concept uh, at our university's golf course here. And they have a very sort of, um, you know, different nines. The front nine is more of an open oak savanna prairie type style, very few trees. The back nine is through the woods. And we would expect, and we, we know because we test trials there every once in a while, the back nine has much more dollar spot than the front nine. And so we put some stations out and sure enough, you, you know, the, the front nine, uh, hole seven is where I had one of the stations. And that was consistently throughout the year, about 10 to 15 points higher on the dollar spot model than, or sorry, lower than the, than the back nine. And so, you know, the follow-up research then is, you know, how many zones would you need to break up a, an average golf course into? What is the difference that would lead to different spray intervals, right? I mean, if one spot is three points lower than another, we'd spray that differently than another. But I think, I think AI, because that would be a mass amount of data to collect just for a single golf course. And so if you could use yeah, right. AI to help you analyze that data, help you determine which zones that you would break your golf course or your site out into, and then also what are the sprayable, the treatmentable differences uh, for when you would spray. I think that's a, that's, a, that's a significant advancement in how we would treat for not only dollar spot, but certainly uh, other diseases as well, where it just does not make a whole lot of sense to spray 30 acres of fairways if maybe only five are going to be susceptible at any given time. Well, and it also highlights the need for improved application technology, right? Like whether it's, you know, a, a small spray drone that could fill up with a, you know, a small amount of material and go out to specific sites and make those applications automatically or autonomously, or it's a sprayer that has, you know, a set of cartridges with different materials so that as the prop, as the sprayer is going over different pieces of the property, it can apply one thing or another, depending on what those, those uh, diseases are, those those are things that we don't currently have access to, at least not on on large scale right. uh, operations for sure. Yeah, no, I would agree that the advancement, uh, I mean, I think the science is is there kind of, it's, it's, it's at least suggests that it's a, certainly a uninvestable uh, uh, topic or an investable uh, scenario that, that, sh that should be successful based on the data we've collected so far. Uh, and, but the advancements in sprayer technology, I think are there, right? Uh, spraying by drone is, 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 is something it's in ag. Coming. And, and, and we've, I've sure. seen pictures online of people spraying, you know, their, their native areas using drones. So um, I think it's there. I don't think it's that far off. We, we just need to have a better idea of, of when we would spray different parts of the course at different times. Yeah, right. Yeah, so Paul, um, just a quick question um, to break it down. What if if somebody's interested in using this model, how can they go about utilizing it? Like where where to find it, um, and and what you need to put in get your uh, how much dollar spot pressure you have. Yeah, it's a that's a good question. Probably somebody should have led with after. Now that we've talked about it for 30 minutes, so thanks for uh, cutting in there, <laughs> Dylan. Uh, we have sort of an explanation page on the dollar spot model at uh, at our web page, which let me just kind of, uh, I'll just type into the chat if that's okay. Is there a chat that everybody sees? Yep, there is okay. a chat, yeah. Okay, uh, let me just, uh, it's a link on our, on our Diagnostic Lab website. So I'll just, uh, that would be simpler to do. Um, and so let me just... Uh, there it is. And so that page explains sort of the background on the model and how it was developed. It links to the scientific paper if you really want to geek out on it. Uh, but it also provides links to some self-calculators. Uh, we, we do provide some Excel files on that website if you want to calculate it yourself. There's really no need to because uh, different groups have taken the model and implemented it into their sort of suite of offerings. Um, so uh, one you can go to is uh, the GDD tracker site at Michigan State, and I don't know if that kind of goes all the way down into Tennessee or not, but that's one website you can use for most of the Midwest. Um, Syngenta Greencast, if you go to the Syngenta Dollar Spot Solutions page and type in your zip code, and you can sign up for email alerts that uh, will email you when the Dollar Spot model is above uh, whatever spray threshold you set. Based on our research and field validation, we recommend 20% as a spray threshold, but that can vary wildly. Uh, we've been doing some follow-up research, and I know Rutgers has done some follow-up research. Uh, and if you have a more resistant cultivar of bentgrass, uh, your spray threshold can go from like 20, which is what we use for Pencross, 
Um, it can go up to like 40 or 50. So it could be a lot, lot higher depending on the cultivar that you have. Um, so Syngenta Greencast is, is another good one. And then Greenkeeper is another one. So for those, uh, it, it, the dollar spot model is available on the free version of Greenkeeper, uh, but you can get a seven day prediction if you have the, the, the paid version of Greenkeeper. So uh, those are probably the top two. I'm sure there's others. I, I know that um, you know others in Europe have been using the model because dollar spots becoming a much more severe issue in Europe as, as their climate changes as well. Uh, so those are probably the two top ones that I know of, of right now. If anybody else has any other uh, ones that they know of or use, please uh, please let me know and, and we can add it to our Dollar Spot webpage. We yeah, had another the, uh, the offerings from uh, measure.io also has the Dollar Spot model in it. Um, and there's probably a few others. But the, the other thing, and to your point, the, the work out of Rutgers with the threshold selections, um, you can also you know, and I'd love to hear what you think, but you can also kind of empirically find that yourself by looking at those different threshold numbers and then having a, you know, a location, whether it's on your nursery or a chipping green or something that's a check plot so that you can kind of see when do you start to see disease development in a conducive environment that would, would make you, you know, uncomfortable at, at that much disease and that you need to go apply. Uh, I think it it has the most applicability and the most impact, uh, certainly up your way with cool season fairways, right? Where, you know, if you could get rid of two or three sprays, not only do you save a significant amount of money, but you also uh, start to, to, you know, see, you know, a sharp reduction in the amount of product you're using uh, and putting into the environment, which I think is a good thing, right? So, um, you know, in our area, if you saved a spray on greens, that's great. But if you're spraying something like, you know, a relatively inexpensive fungicide, you're talking about, you know, a, a five or a $600, you know, $700 savings. That's not going to, you know, make, make everybody, you know, super excited. But if you're saving a couple thousand dollars on a large scale application, that's a big deal. Yeah, no, it's, highly recommended that you figure out what your own threshold is at your golf course because every golf course is going to be a little bit different uh there's just so many and, and that's actually one benefit of this model i think if you compare it to older models from the 80s they, they just say spray or don't spray there's no number to it right it's, it's on or off and because of all the variables that exist from golf course to golf course it's impossible really to create one number for every single golf course so basically what we say is is you start at 20 but just like you said, Brandon, uh, figure out what your own threshold is. So uh, have a spot, an out-of-the-way area that you know you know gets dollar spot relatively early, uh, kind of one of your indicator areas, and just don't spray it. And then keep track of the model. Um, and when you start to see dollar spot, uh, back it up. You know, back up the model a number, a couple of numbers, a couple of clicks, and that's your spray threshold, right? So if you know if you if you started to see some dollar spot at uh, you know, at 30 and then spray at 25 or something like that. So, but that's, I think that's really important to do just because of all the variables that go in every single golf course, we can't possibly put all of those into, into a model. It makes no sense be an impossible model to use. Um, so basically, you know, what we've said is here's kind of the sliding scale. You got to kind of do some of the legwork, but I think in the end, it makes a really, really useful, uh, useful tool. Well, and I got to think too, Paul, that like if the if the interventions that we're putting down just for general turf grass management are affecting disease outbreak, like you talked about with nitrogen and, you know, in the soil, turning on bacterial communities that may suppress the pathogen, it's got to make that modeling piece even harder, right? Um, it, isn't there data with rolling in dollar spot suppression where if one's rolling, say, bentgrass putting greens, that that turns on different systems that suppress suppress dollar spot. Am I remembering that correctly? Yep, that was work for Michigan State. Paul Giordano did, that, did some of that work. And um, what they clearly found, right? So there's, there's kind of two approaches, right, Brandon? We can kind of do this two ways. Is you can, you can go back and you kind of understand all the biology ahead of time, and then you kind of develop controls based on that. Or you just go try a whole bunch of shit and then whatever works, then you figure out why it works like after that. And that's kind of what happened with the rolling, right? They, you know, this is something that had been rolling, been around for a long time, uh, but really wasn't thought of as a disease control uh, uh, concept. But no, it was uh, almost a serendipitous thing, you know, right. 
you know, Nikolai was doing the rolling for maintaining green speed and then noticed like, hey, this is getting less dollar spot. What's yeah. going on there? Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, uh, so clearly uh, on, on putting greens, very clearly less dollar spot on, on putting greens with rolling. Uh, fairways, the data is not quite as strong, but certainly appears that there's some reduction of, of dollar spot when, when you roll fairways. So what's the mechanism for that? You know, it's not a, it's not a dew removal, right? They, they had, they tested that where they, they went out and they removed dew at the same time they were rolling and the dew removal plots had, had more, um, it wasn't, it wasn't just the dew that was removing the dew that was, uh, the issue. The dew removal plots had more dollar spot, uh, than, than the rolled plots. So, you know, there's some thought that maybe it's it, the rolling, the equipment going over that, is is stimulating some stress response in the plants that's also uh leading to, to less dollar spot a defense response um one thing that i i think might be the most likely is that in the in the top you know the top half inch they realized that the the volumetric water content was higher so there might have been some light compaction in that top half inch which is increasing the water holding ability which might be either stimulating a response in the plant or stimulating a response in the microbial community there right in the top half inch, which could then be suppressing. Uh, yeah, suppressing I think there was, wasn't there some indication that the, the, the I didn't, I, they didn't do a full microbiome type project, but they did look at some of the microbial community stuff. And, and it showed that there were some differences there that probably needs more study to really understand, but certainly that it could be playing a role, whether it's the volumetric water content or the, uh, the the microbial community that's stimulated by having a bit more moisture there, right? Yeah, I mean that that seems the most likely explanation based on on the data that they've presented in, in that paper. So I think that makes most sense. And it's not just dollar spot, right? So Oregon State uh, looked at it and found that there was less microdokium patch with regular rollings. Um, so it, there's, there's clearly a wide, a wide scope of benefits with, um, with rolling. Kind yeah. of somewhat related just in that it's a kind of agronomic intervention that relates to the outbreak. We had a question, uh, come in about if, uh, either of you two could comment on slow release nitrogen versus quick release nitrogen as it relates to dollar spot management, any one over the other, um, your thoughts. Brandon, you want to go first? Sure. I would, I, what I would say is, is that the, the question about quick release and slow release largely depends on the frequency with which you're willing to apply the material, right? So if you're applying uh, material on a regular basis, you know, every seven days or every, you know, even, you know, 10 to 14 days, then your source, uh, probably doesn't, you know, necessarily depend so much because you're, you're constantly adding a small amount uh, to, to even out the growth response. The whole reason why you would use the slow release fertility is to do that same thing without having to constantly reapply. So if you're in a situation where labor is limited and you can't make as frequent an application uh, program as a result of that, then using a slow release source to help smooth out that uh, that nitrogen release curve is going to help you. If you're in a lawn care operation where, say, you're managing Kentucky bluegrass and you want uh, a more consistent response from your fertility, then having slow release fertility makes sense there. I don't think it's a, a question of whether quick release or slow release necessarily makes a difference. It's more about that release pattern and how it relates to the frequency with which you're applying that that given amount of fertility. Yep, I yeah, I totally agree. I don't think there's any um, anything inherent about quick versus uh, slow release that would that would really impact uh, dollar spot development. It's really more of of making sure that you have that consistent uh, consistent growth. So I totally agree with Brandon there. One uh, one thing I want to go back to, which I meant to bring up before. Can I just interrupt really quick? Oh, sure, Paul, please. Like one caveat that I would add to that is that when it comes to slow release sources that are coming from some sort of organic material, whether it's a manure base or uh, some sort of organic material, is that there is some indication. We're not, we don't have an exact reason or how or why, but that there is some indication that that does alter some of that microbial community aspect of it and may play a role as well. So in that regard, if you're using a, um, you know, an organic-based fertility, 
then there may be some, some good reasons to continue to do that. But largely when it comes to the nitrogen piece, particularly, it's really a matter of the application rate and the frequency with which you apply it. Yep. So the, the thing I was going to go back to and, and Brandon talking about the lawn care operators made me uh, think about it that I meant to mention it earlier. Uh, we've never we've never done any research with the dollar spot model on dollar spot and lawns. Uh, but I think it's a great it's a great situation where the model could be used because it's it, you know, dollar spots not going to be something that occurs consistently and severely throughout the year on, on, on lawns. Uh, so, you know, the model can can help you. Um, can help you determine when a preventative application of, of fungicide might be needed for some of those some of those lawns where uh, where they don't want dollar spot to develop. And it's a conversation that I've had more in the past couple of years than I have before because at least up in our climate, we're seeing more dollar spot develop in lawns than we had before because our, our overnight lows, our nights are getting warmer and more humid. And so we're seeing more dollar spot and develop in lawns to the point where we're getting questions about it. And 10 years ago, nobody get, you know nobody cared about dollar spot on lawns. And now we're seeing that that more and, and some pretty pretty nasty outbreaks actually uh, that we've seen uh, in the past couple of years. So the model, again, we've never done research on it. So I don't know what the threshold would be on when you'd wanna spray and, and when it develops on bluegrass and lawns. Bluegrass is more susceptible to the dollar spot than, than tall fescue would be, but it does occur on, dollar, on tall fescue as well. Um, but I think the model would be a great tool for lawn care operators that deal with lawns that develop law, uh, develop dollar spot. Yeah, yeah for that's, sure. that's awesome. Um, one question, additional question I had about the, um, the model is, does that model, is it consistent across all different types of turf grasses? So if you have a Bermuda grass putting green, does it still, is it still very consistent even when you have a bent grass putting green or does it change at all? Um, with thresholds or or anything like that. Yep. Yes. Uh, we yes. we developed the twenty percent <laughs> number comes from Pencross in Madison, uh, and that 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 twenty percent number was consistent across Pencross at other sites as well. So, but basically, Pencross in the north, uh, in you know the northeast and the Midwest is basically where that 20% number comes from. So if you have any other cultivar, any other grass species, any other dramatically different location, your, your number could be quite different. Um, so, I mean, I would, I would certainly, I would always recommend before you implement the model to kind of calculate your own threshold, but certainly if you're on a different species or down South or something, you would definitely wanna uh, figure out what the threshold would be for your site. Yeah, for sure. I would I would say that on Bermuda grass, uh, typically, certainly on fairways, we'll see it pop up, and it's generally a nuisance issue. It's not anything that some fertility won't just take care of. But on on putting surfaces where it might be more of a concern, um, I would suspect that you'd have to alter that threshold um, to to get things to match up more with observation. But for the most part, um, it the model st should still hold. It's just a matter of what threshold where you would start to see like, okay, I'm an increased risk for actually seeing the disease development. So I'm going to ask an, another follow-up question because I've heard you guys talk about this in scientific meetings before, and I think it'd be interesting for the audience to hear it in this forum. So let's pretend, you know, one is planting uh, a new stand, a cool season turf from seed, let's say it's bent grass, they go through all the work to do site prep and, and renovate, they get a really good cultivar, and they go and they seed, and then they have a dollar spot outbreak. Where did that dollar spot come from? Well, that's a see, good see, my question was going to be, what is the coolest thing that the end user about dollar spot that the end user doesn't really understand? And I was kind of figuring that you might talk about this, Paul. So take it away. Sure. Uh, so, um, so I got my PhD with Dr. Kearns back when he was at Wisconsin and another person in the lab, her name was, her name is, she's still alive. Uh, her name's Renee Rio. And she got her PhD uh, and her project was focused on dollar spot. And one of the things that she worked on uh, was testing for dollar spot in bent grass seed. So she developed a, a, a QPCR, a nested QPCR assay 
to test for the presence of the dollar spot fungus um, on and in bent grass seed. And what she found was that there is dollar spot within, within bent grass seed. It's a very small percentage. It was like of what she tested, she, I can't remember the, the exact numbers of seed lots she tested and how many samples from each bag and all that sort of stuff. It was something probably like 0.001% uh, were positive for, for dollar spot. But if you think of how many seeds are present in a bag of you know a 50 pound or a 30 pound pail of bent grass seed, 0.0001% is still hundreds and hundreds of, of seeds that are going to be positive for dollar spot. So certainly I think one of the ways that dollar spot comes in is, is on infected seed. So you know, then we've had follow-up discussions. Well, does you know, does does bent grass and does turf grass need sort of a certified disease-free seed? situation, right? So something like potatoes, where they plant the tubers, that's really common, right? Wisconsin, big potato producing state, puts a ton of money into producing these certified seed-free potatoes so that there's less disease uh, in the potato fields that year. Would that make sense? Does that make, you know, it would be great to say that the bent grass seed is, is certified disease-free. My guess is the amount of work that you would have to do to, to cleanse all that seed, uh, is you know the dollar spot's still going to come in some other way I would imagine right so it might you know might come in on a golfer's shoe or you know blow in from a nearby site or you know a mower that's being demoed around or something can bring it in so you know I don't know how much more it would cost for a for a seed company to have seed be certified disease free um, but probably not insignificant uh, especially you know seed is expensive enough these days. And if the seed is just going to come in, you know, like a year later, or the, if the disease is going to come in like a year later anyways, I'm not sure that the practicality there, but certainly on the seed is one way that uh, dollar spot comes into a new seeding. Yeah, for sure. And I guess to pose that same question to me, the, the thing that I think is most interesting, and it's actually one of the, the aims of Dylan's master's research is, is the impact that ultraviolet light has on the fungus and we've done a considerable amount of work and are continuing to do work on that that you know I've, I've seen just anecdotally you know you were talking about dollar spot being more prevalent in kentucky bluegrass lawns i've seen uh you know small plantings of a, of trees in a in a landscape where in the shadow of that tree uh, the main shadow pattern there's more dollar spot than in the main part of the yard where the sun is shining all day and and uh, it's not that the disease doesn't occur in the sunny area it's that there's less right and we've seen the same kind of thing and you know just from a if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective if this thing hangs out in the plant and and is operating in some way within the plant then the chloroplasts and the structures inside the plant are going to shield this thing from a lot of ultraviolet radiation. So it makes sense that it's really sensitive to ultraviolet, right? Um, and those are both things I, I find just extremely fascinating about this organism. And I had no idea when I worked on it for my PhD in, in the late 90s and early 2000s that it was gonna be something I'm still working on in 2023, but it's, it, it's truly a fascinating fungus for sure. Yeah, the, the biology really is 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 very interesting, and um, you know it's it's exciting to see, uh, you know, some of the research like Dylan's and others that are that are helping us explore uh, what the fungus and how it interacts with the plant. Because, like you said, it's it, it's it's not like, you know, it just gets in and starts rampaging and killing killing the, the leaf cells. It it, it kind of delicately like comes inside, you know, kind of lives in there for a while. At least we think it has this this sort of latent stage where it just kind of coexists peacefully with with the plant and nothing really that bad happens and then there's something that switches and it and it turns and it can cause significant damage and that's why you know sometimes you have those overnight outbreaks of dollar spot it's not like the fungus overnight got inside the leaf colonized the leaf and caused those symptoms overnight it had been inside for a period of time and then there's some environmental cue or some host cue or fungal cue that that caused it to, to switch and, and turn pathogenic. So really understanding that process is going to be a, a, a large part of really understanding um, how the infection occurs and hopefully leading to, to some, some more effective uh, strategies for control. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's just a, 
it 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 never ceases to amaze me how it you know we think we have it figured out and then it just you know teases us with to, to put this in a way that maybe Jim can understand, it's it's the annual bluegrass of the disease world, Jim. Well, it's it's funny you say that, Paul, because I was sitting here, you're talking about low percentages of seed lots having the pathogen present, you know, fractions of fractions of 1%. And in the USDA Poe project, one of the cool uh, objectives was multiple universities, Tennessee was involved in this, it was led by uh, a gentleman, Andrew Osborne at Texas A&M, who this is the focus of his uh, PhD project there, where he buried seed lots of Poa annua from 10 different locations across the country at different depths in the soil, and we left them buried for different time points. And what we ended up finding was that the viability was really, really low. Like, like you said, with dollar spot and seed, it was fractions of 1% were viable when they were buried in the soil. Uh, beyond a year. But when you look at the amount of seed production that can be had from one individual plant, a low percentage of viability still allows for the species to perpetuate uh, their forward. So you're right. It's, well, it's certainly and, a, a parallel. And in, and to your point, Jim, and to Paul's point, right? Like it's probably not just in bent grass. It's probably in annual bluegrass. And so you might go through all that work to get certified disease-free seed. And, you know, you get a POA plant that happens to have a little resident dollar spot coming along with it and, and off you go, right? It's, it's going to be very difficult to keep that out of a field of, of a perennial crop, right? Like very different than a, you know, an annual potato crop. You, you've got a perennial crop that you're trying to keep, you know, quote unquote, disease free. It's just not a plausible way to go about things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Coming to the end of the hour here, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put up our uh, information for superintendents. And while I do that, you know, knowing that both of you gentlemen run lots of different trials for dollar spot control, um, wondering if you could share anything that has kind of stood out uh, as newer fungicides, different approaches of, of other fungicides. I know we've talked a lot about the model, but just, you know, I think when we think about dollar spot, a lot of people just kind of think chlorothalonil and then might stop thinking, right? And there's a lot of new and different tools uh, that one can use to go after this pathogen and was hoping you could share some of your feedback on that. Sure. Um, what, what I will say is, uh, so the SDHI class of chemistries has, has been a very effective class, uh, longer periods of control, 21, 28 days. The concern that I have, and Brandon, I don't know if you're seeing it down by you, is we are seeing significant resistance to the SDHIs. Um, and not, I'm not going to pick on the, on the product, but uh, it's one that we've seen a, a rapid drop in, in control, and that's exemplar. Uh, as, as recently as 2017, we would get 35, 28, 35 days of control in, in heavy pressures and uh, resistance develops so rapidly that you know we're, we're lucky if we get 10 days with that product now. So the resistance to dollar spot with the SDHIs develops rapidly. And that's, that's a concern, especially on fairways where we wanna try and extend those intervals as much as possible. So really, you know, use those judiciously, those SDHIs, they're really effective but resistances can be pretty severe. And I know, I feel like for a lot of years, we talked about resistance and everybody's like, eh, I don't really care. But now we're seeing some really strong effects with the SDHIs and dollar spot. And I think it's, it's on people's radar a little bit more. So, you know, I've, I've really recommended kind of making for us on our fairways up here in the Midwest, kind of Flazinam as your base, uh, your base product. And then you branch out from there based on what else you need to get. So Flazinam, pretty good dollar spot product, normally gets you 14 days of control. The problem is if you don't have the labor or, you know, the ability to spray your fairways every 14 days, going beyond that is hard. I think one of the most difficult things for a Midwest superintendent to do from a disease point of view is get 21 days or more uh, of dollar spot control from, from any product. doesn't matter what product it is. So that's, that's one thing that we're struggling with. Yeah, I would say for us, we haven't quite seen the, the increase in resistance for the SDHIs. Uh, on dollar spot, but I think that's largely because we're focused on greens for the most part with cool season turf. Um, and so that allows for, but it's, it's coming, right? Like it's, it, we're going to see it. 
eventually. Um, certainly the SDHIs were a game changer. The other thing that I think we've seen a little bit of, of you know, a, a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel, if you will, is um, with some of the newer DMIs and, and how their binding site affinities are a little bit different than the older, more traditional DMIs. You can see an increase in the interval of control for those. And then certainly some of them are very cost effective as well. So that allows for a lower budget place to get a 14 or a 21 day application out on greens turf uh, that allows them to, to save a little bit of money that way as well. Um, I think those are the kind of the two big game changers. And then the, the next piece of the puzzle will be, um, you know, how do these these newer, more dollar spot resistant varieties fare over time? Uh, because, you know, we've seen that kind of first generation come out. Um, everybody was, you know, kind of excited that that could provide the window that they needed on fairways. And that really hasn't been the case. Like over time, you kind of see the the resistance of those varieties kind of decline to some level. It doesn't go down to say pen cross susceptibility, but it does decline over time. And then, um, you know, you go from maybe not needing to make applications to needing to make a couple of applications to needing to be on a regular spray program. And then um, these newer varieties, you know, with some dollar spot resistance, certainly in greens turf would be a really great thing for our region. Uh, where if you didn't have to make dollar spot applications, you could get away with something kind of nice that way. Um, but I think those are the things that are kind of hot issues now that we need to further explore and understand better. Yeah, I agree, uh, Dr. Horvath. Um, kind of pivoting off of that, where can people go to find out where what kind of cultivars are more resistant to dollar spot? Um, what kind of resources can they use if they're potentially regrassing greens or fairways um, and are interested in finding a, a germplasm that's more resistant? I'd, I'd say, uh, you know, from the germplasm side of things, you can certainly check uh, and look at the NTEP trials that are, are looking at how varieties are performing across the region in which you're in. The new tool that they have is nice to be able to hone in on things like dollar spot resistance versus green color or quality or whatever. Um, so that's a, that's a good thing. And then from a fungicide perspective, you know, the, the two places that I typically send everybody right now are to the PPA one that Paul, you're a part of, uh, the extension article that, uh, has some efficacy data in there and then turf files. And then of course, Dylan, you know, that we're working on, uh, some efficacy data that will go into, uh, Jim's mobile weed app that will become the mobile pest app for, for our area that'll have some efficacy information in there as well. So that's gonna be exciting okay. here in the next uh, six, eight months, hopefully. One more question before we wrap here, just kind of came in. Any information on, does height of cut make a difference on dollar spot incidents in Bermuda or Georgia? Um, Paul, you wanna handle that? Well, I don't know about Bermuda or Zoysia. I'll answer on bent grass quickly and then pivot to you, Brandon, for the what they actually want. Um, there, I've never seen any research on height of cut uh, making a, a big difference with, with bent grass. From just a, a biological standpoint, you would think that the higher the height of cut, the, the more disease you would have because it's going to hold more humidity in that canopy. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of things that are different about if you know, look at a fairway versus a green situation that could lead to more disease pressure in fairways and green. So it might not just be the height of cut. Yeah, I, I'd say the same thing with Bermuda and Zoysia. It's, it's not necessarily just height of cut, uh, although I've seen certainly in Kentucky bluegrass as well as Bermuda and Zoysia at higher heights of cut, um, dollar spot tends to go from dollar spot to like silver dollar spot, right? Like it's um, you know, uh, or silver platter spot, if you will, uh, a little bit larger areas that are the leaf tissues affected. You've got the mycelium growing from leaf to leaf that causes a little bit larger symptom pattern than just a, a nice, you know, silver dollar size spot. Um, but why that occurs is not necessarily very well understood, uh, apart from just knowing that there's probably a, a little bit of a microclimate effect and then uh, more leaf tissue for the fungus to, to munch on. Um, but 
high to cut doesn't necessarily, I don't think, um, you still see dollar spot appear in higher heights of cut. It's just a slightly different symptom pattern. I'm waiting for one of you pathologists to discover a new disease and call it hubcap spot. <laughs> I, that sounds I think, a good one to end on there, Jim. That's a good one to end yeah. on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> any parting shots before we go? We uh, are coming to the end of the hour. Anything else you want to share with the audience or everybody hungry and want to break for lunch? No, nothing, nothing else for me. Just appreciate the invite, guys. I always enjoy chatting with you. Yeah, it's good to good to see you, Paul. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you, Paul. I'm sure we could talk dollar spot for the rest of the day, but uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, we will be back uh, in July. We'll be delayed. We won't be the first Tuesday of the month because of the 4th of July holiday, but we will be the, the second Tuesday in July. Uh, our guest will be uh, our new Turfgrass colleague here at UT, Dr. Becky Bowling. Uh, so we will see you then. Enjoy the rest of your day.